Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. I hope you're enjoying this second season of How to Choose. We've done something a little bit different. And instead of simply having just Tess and myself talking, we decided to interview a range of people to talk about the topic of decisions at work. So the guests that we've talked with so far have worked a range of different jobs and have had some really interesting things to say, I think, about decision making in the context of their work. Have you been enjoying it, Tess? You're obliged to say yes, aren't you? I really have. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. No, it's been rubbish, Ken. No, it's been fantastic. I've I've enjoyed doing the interviews, but I've also really enjoyed listening to your interviews just because you get a different person's perspective when you've got a different interviewer. And it's just been inspiring. It makes me want to go out and start a whole bunch of different pathways. I want to do every one of these careers. Yeah, I felt a bit the same. It, it really is interesting, isn't it? And I know we've used the word inspiring quite a lot, probably overused it, but it's a word that's probably going to pop up today after we uh, listen to the interview and, uh, and talk about what we've heard. But here, let me start with a question. What do you think would be a more intimidating job? Police detective? or high school teacher? On the face of it, I mean, I have been a high school teacher, so it's a bit of a loaded question, I guess. Yeah. But I think teaching for sure. I think there is nothing more intimidating in this world than last period extra year eight or nine students. That's probably the hardest thing that you'll ever do. I remember my first year teaching, I had a very challenging subject that I really didn't know much about. And I had that class last period on a Friday afternoon. And uh, we were all confused and nobody really wanted to be there. And it was certainly challenging. Well, if you're not sure and you're listening and you think, well, I'm, I don't know, they both sound like tough jobs. Today, we're chatting with someone who has been both. Doug Braden, currently principal at Faith Lutheran College in the Lockyer Valley in Southeast Queensland, talks about how he has been able to transfer the skills between what on the surface might seem very different professions. He shares his passion about teaching. He shares his vision about how secondary education can be transformed. And he describes some of the really exciting and creative work that's going on at Faith Lutheran. So our guest today is Doug Braden, who's the principal of Faith Lutheran College, a school of 800 students in Plainland, which is located in the beautiful Lockyer Valley, west of Brisbane. Welcome to How to Choose, Doug. Oh, thank you. Now, Doug, I know you haven't always worked in education. Uh, when did you first become interested in becoming a secondary teacher? Back when I was at school, my dad was in the Air Force when he was younger, and I always wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force. And so things changed when I was in year 12. So my whole life, I wanted to be a, a fighter pilot, but wow. I had asthma. Asthma was a problem. Oh, and so um, I, when I didn't get accepted into the Air Force as a pilot, I was then going, I don't know what I want to do. Like, I don't want to be an aeronautical engineer. And I was in yeah. this point where who knows what I want to do. I remember going to my guidance counselor back at school, and he said, said to me, um, what are you interested in? I said, well, physics and maths is what I'm really, really good at. Maybe I could be a teacher. And I remember the guidance counselor saying to me, you're too smart to be a teacher. And <laughs> he encouraged me to do, do engineering. So I went into uni yeah. doing a double degree IT and electronics engineering. Hated yeah. it completely hated it. But when I was at uni, though, met a bunch of friends who were doing their teaching degree and I decided to, to consider that. And so I swapped yeah. over at the end of the year to a science degree, a physics maths degree, knowing yeah. that that could open up into teaching. So I sort of followed my friends into teaching, not because I wanted necessarily to be a teacher at that time, but I followed into teaching. Um, but I, yeah. didn't stay, I didn't stay as a teacher for very long. Well, look, just before we go on to the next step in your career, which is a fascinating one, what do you think now about that advice? Because I've heard that same kind of comment made 
made before, you know, you're too smart to be a teacher. Oh, it wasn't made to me, but just to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? Would you challenge that now, knowing what you know? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. I think what we need is incredibly smart, creative teachers that love children. So we yeah. shouldn't be discouraging smart people from going into teaching because it's a very, very good career. Interestingly, what do you think drove that? Well, it could have been simply that I wasn't aware of what I wanted to do. And yeah. maybe the careers counsellor thought, well, how about you open up your options wide? Go yeah. big. So tell us about the next stage in, in yeah, Doug Braden's okay. career. <laughs> yeah, so I took my first job at a small school that had just entered into the into the secondary school. My first role at that school is the only math science teacher in the school. And as a result, throughout that year, yeah. I was tasked with writing all the programs for when we were going to go into senior studies and into the senior school as well, which is a lot for a first year. Yeah. But during my time in my first year of teaching, there was a, there was a girl in my class who disclosed um, sexual abuse to me. And through that process, and I had some friends in the police, I've actually got um, some of my members of my family, my uncles who were in the police. And just being some time outside of work hearing their stories, I thought, hang on, maybe police work is what I'd like to do. And then I put my application in, got accepted that year into the Queensland Police Service. So tell us then, how long were you in the police force? And uh, tell us just a bit about that experience. Nine years in total. Absolutely loved every moment of it. Absolutely loved it. So I was in uniform for about two years. During that time, I was undercover in prostitution and also in another unit called the Tactical Crime Squad. From there, I went into the uh, CIB, uh, Criminal Investigation Branch, as a detective and various comments, worked on various big operations, murders, so forth, and absolutely loved it. So I spent the majority of my time as a detective in the the Queensland Police Service, but eventually moved back to teaching after that. And I would imagine there would have been some of your colleagues, perhaps in the police force, a bit surprised that here's this maths, physics, uh, uh, academic star who's coming in and saying, hey, now I'm going to be a detective. Yeah, well... I don't know if you remember a television show that was called Numbers. Do you remember that show? Yes. Numbers. That was my nickname in the CIB was Numbers. Having said that, being a maths teacher or good at maths means you're good at problem solving. And so even though it's not maths, there's so many translatable skills in terms of how you actually approach problems. And I would say that my time as a maths teacher actually helped me be a detective in terms of approaching things very methodically. And that problem solving background really helped in that too. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating topic. It's something we've talked a bit about in our first season, that transferability of of Mm. skills between different roles. But can you talk through some of the really tough decisions that you had to make as a as a detective? There's probably two different sort of hard decisions that you make. One is decisions you have to make in the moment with not much time. That's more common when you're in uniform because you're responding to crimes that are occurring in the moment. And there are times also where you're making very time short decisions as a detective as well. They're normally when things go bad or and you've got to make a decision in the moment whether you pull your firearm out, do you shoot? They're probably those decisions that play on your mind because you've got very short amount of time to make a decision. There are frameworks the police that help me make decisions, which I'll talk about soon. But the other decisions in the police were what charges do I charge a person with? What's the case law on this? What do I need to do to prove this? Those sort of things. So there's a lot that you need to know out on the road in order to know what charges to charge people with. They're probably the other two things, but also the ethical decision making as well. You might have the power to do something, but you should you execute that power. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the other areas, the ethical decision making outside yeah. of the time poor decision making that you have as well. 
Well, I'd be interested to know then a bit about those frameworks that you've mentioned. The, the, the framework that they use in the police is called the self-test. And the self-test just means, you know, will the decision pass the scrutiny of the public? So that's the, the S. If this was reported in the media, what would be the response? Yeah. The E is, is it ethical? Yeah. Is, if, is it lawful? And F yeah. is, is it fair? I remember talking to my uncle before I was in the police saying that you can do something that's lawful, that's not the right decision. And that's so true. Like there's a lot of powers that police have and you can do things lawfully. That doesn't mean it's the right decision, you know. And and even now, the self-test only goes so, so far. Like you can make the yeah. right decision, but the optics can look bad. So we have a use of force model as well. And this is where it normally pops up is when you're using a particular type of use of force, whether it's handcuffs, whether it's your firearm, whether it's hands, whether it's tactical withdrawal, or whether it's using your baton, for instance. Yeah. The baton is a very violent looking in- implement, you know, so yeah. it's, one of, it's one of the items that a police officer can use is the baton. But you're often thinking in your head, what would this look like from the outside? If this is videotaped, this looks really bad, even if you need to protect your own safety. So that's where it gets confusing is that do I use something I'm able to use and I need to defend myself. But then in the back of your mind is, if somebody's filming this, this looks really bad. So should you take an injury instead of being on the, on the news? Does that make sense? So there's all these things yeah. that are popping in your head in the moment. But the self-test wow. is there to help you. And it really needs to be there because the police have a lot of powers, extreme yeah. powers. And so there's a lot of responsibility that needs to go with making those decisions. To me, it's more about those decisions you've got to make in the moment where you don't have time to reflect. But then yeah. when you defend yourself, you can be cross-examined over that for a long period of time for a decision that was made in the moment. And that's it's not fair. Yeah. You can do the best that you can in the moment. Yeah. And how yeah. did you make that decision to say, look, it's time to wrap this up and, and go back into education? Towards the end of my time in the police, it sounds very weird, but I felt the call in back to mathematics. So I think this that's a very yeah. weird, a weird thing. But I did actually <laughs> I did actually miss the study of mathematics. And so towards the end of my time as a detective, I was entertaining the concept of doing a PhD, looking at voice print identification and using that yeah. in terms of uh, helping the police. So as a police officer doing my PhD, the problem with that was there was no no um, supervisor in Australia um, that could supervise my PhD studies in that area. And so I decided to leave the police and go back to teaching. I got a job at Grace Lutheran College for a year, but it was only a very short period of time. I found it very difficult re-entering civilian life, but I was there for a year and then I moved to the Queensland College of Teachers, which is the regulatory body in Queensland that ensures that teachers are suitable to teach. So I was part of an investigation unit there looking into misconduct of teachers that's a combination of teaching and, and law enforcement, really. So in yeah. that role, I was tasked with gross misconduct and teacher incompetence and just investigating cases where either parents or the schools have reported instances of misconduct, whether it was sexual relationships with students, those sort of things, yeah. and doing reports to a tribunal for their teacher registration. Yeah, well, fascinated to understand that in that context, did you find yourself using some of oh, the skills yeah. that you'd for acquired? Sure. For sure. And again, probably the decisions you make and that is the appropriate use of powers. Um, you have powers yeah. as an investigator and that, and when do you use those and when do you not use those? Obviously, in interviewing suspects, those sort of things, the same sort of skills, exactly the same skills as a detective, but with less yeah. powers, basically. Yeah. Did you find that looking at the education department from that side must have opened your eyes up to things that were going on, perhaps, or given you a different picture of education than you would have seen, obviously, as a teacher? How did that 
uh, impact your thinking as you thought about going back into the classroom again? I was surprised probably how many complaints had been made against teachers at the time, even though it wasn't a huge percentage-wise. I think there were 93,000 registered teachers, but I was surprised by the number of allegations against teachers. One of the things that they surprised me the most was the quality of investigative work in um, non-law enforcement agencies. It was pretty poor. So probably what I found that I could be used the most was ensure that the, you know, the principles of natural justice and procedural fairness had to be really um, tightened up. Teachers weren't being dealt with by external agencies appropriately. They weren't given fair hearing rule, non-bias, all those sort of things appropriately. So as a detective, when you actually have to give evidence in court to justify the decisions you make, certainly helped my investigative capacity outside law enforcement a lot. And I think that's probably the greatest input that I could offer to that organisation was ensuring those principles were upheld. Oh, that's really interesting. So if we kind of take a step forward then again, you know, you you moved on from that role, you did get back into classroom teaching. I went to John Paul College after that as a maths teacher yep. and then very shortly after that I was a, a head of year of a of a particular year level and then head of mathematics and IT at that school before I then got my next role and I've been studying throughout this doing my master's doing other bachelor degrees and then I got a role as head of middle school at Westmorton Anglican College and then from there um, became head of secondary college at a Lutheran high school um, that was ahead of a campus it was two campuses And from there to my current role as college principal at Faith. So can you talk us through that transition from, I guess we could call it from practitioner, classroom practitioner or teacher, into an administrative role? How did you make the decision to kind of say, look, I want to get out of the classroom? Then having made that decision, what did you notice about the difference in roles? You know, were you surprised that an administrative management role looked like when you got into it? When I first left teaching as a occupation to middle management and teaching, it wasn't because I didn't want to leave the classroom. The reason I became a teacher because I wanted to help kids and it was in the proactive sense. I I, I love kids and I I want to be able to help change their lives. And so when the opportunity became a head of year who's responsible for the pastoral care of kids, it's because I love kids. So I didn't feel like I was leaving the classroom. It just felt like I'd been given a, a role because I was still mainly a teacher. At that time, it was a 0.8 load of the teacher, 0.2 as a head of year. So I was still primarily a teacher, but I just had an opportunity to help the kids. Interesting enough, as a head of year, a lot of your skills as a detective actually yeah. helps because you're actually investigating misbehaviors and those sort of things as well. So not only yeah. are you are building positive relationships and community with the kids, because that's what I love doing, there's yeah. occasion where you're actually having to investigate things like fights and bullying and all those sort of things on the side. And, and a lot of those skills came in. I think my experience in middle management at that level opened up that Sometimes, like I talk about blind spots. Um, As a teacher, you assume everybody else around you teaches similarly to you. It opened my eyes to see how many teachers were actually struggling in the classroom. Um, I didn't realise how many teachers struggled with teaching. And that came through very much as a head of year when teachers are reporting instances of misbehaviour in the classroom constantly where I had no issues. I had zero issues in my classroom. That then probably made me realise that I can actually help teachers become better teachers in that regard. So from there, I went as a head of mathematics and IT in the curriculum space. um, But I realised very early on that the greatest 
change I could affect in kids' lives is around that year nine mark. Mm-hmm. That's when kids can they can make decisions that lock them in for a future. And so year nine yeah. is my passion area. I love those kids in the year nine, especially the naughty kids, you know, love those. There was a combination. The reason I went into management was I wanted to help kids, but I also wanted to help teachers. And that's when I went, that's when I realized I wanted to go into senior leadership. Um, and that's when I went as head of middle school and eventually towards college principal because I knew that as a leader, I can have I can impact more people than just as a teacher. As a teacher, I've got my class, but as a leader, I can impact the whole school and make decisions yeah. that I know is best for the school community. Can you talk a bit more about the kind of skills that you were able to take and apply uh, from your time as a detective and how it had changed you as a teacher uh, in the interim from when you'd first started teaching to when you came back? As a manager and as a leader, there are times where you do have to manage performance of of staff members. That's clearly a a translatable skill. And similarly, when you're dealing with student misbehaviours that are serious, that might result in termination of enrolment or termination of employment. They're quite serious things. And so probably my time, not just as a a police officer, but my time in the QCT, because those two were different. So in the police, you're you're investigating to the criminal proof, which is beyond reasonable doubt, whereas at the QCT, it was balanced probabilities, which was the right. civil. Um, but interestingly, there is that the more serious the consequence is, civil proof ends up on the sliding scale towards nearly criminal proof. So if it results right. in, in ending somebody's employment, because that's a serious consequence, the level of proof required then approaches the criminal side. Does that make sense when you're ending a student's enrolment? So I think I would struggle if I had not been a detective going in yeah. as a teacher to actually understand the intricacies of, of that and also yeah. knowing how to investigate properly. So I probably spent most of my skills as a leader had a lot of time training and developing my managers and my leaders in how to run investigations appropriately because it isn't done well. It isn't done well. And it often kids are not being treated with a, a sense of justice. They're just not. Either the victims are not getting justice or the offending students are not getting justice. It's an interesting concept there. So definitely the translatable skills are in those two areas, staff performance and student issues, easily. How is it changing as a teacher? Well, that's pretty hard to say whether or not police policing did. I certainly, as a young 21-year-old, as a, um, you're not much older than the kids you're teaching. So dealing with behaviours is actually pretty hard because you want yeah. to be friends with the kids. Whereas when you come in at 34 as a teacher, yeah. you've already had experience dealing with fairly serious things as a police officer i never had issues with behavior ever ever not once since that time yeah. i don't know whether it was because of my skills as a police officer not sure you know de-escalate yeah. situations whatever or was it my age and my maturity and, and your presence your confidence i don't know but certainly yeah. i found teaching much easier when i was 34 than when i was 21 yeah. but the translatable skills gosh i wouldn't know how to do my job properly if i hadn't had those skills and because i see it i see it around me and people are actually dealing with issues relating to staff employment it's like, gosh, it just needs to be done much better. It would flow nicely into a question then that I'd had, and that is for people who are maybe looking at going into teaching, we've got a desperate need for teachers, mm-hmm. people who are thinking about it and just thinking, well, I'm not sure, maybe
maybe they've got another set of skills and it may be uh, it may be policing skills or it might be a completely different skill set. What would your advice be to people who are contemplating that career shift? So there's a few things here. I look for people that are not from education. There's a, there's a reason why I look for people that aren't from education. And that's because I, I want a new set of eyes on what's wrong with education. Education doesn't have to be the way it always has been. A, a traditional model of schooling is, is that kids are grouped according to their date of birth. They are then grouped according to ability often. They're put through different faculties, maths, science, English, history, pushed through different year levels. You could fail, but you still get pushed through. And we have like 60-minute blocks. It doesn't matter if you're in a state of flow. We just keep yeah. moving forward. We dress every kid the same. We wear clothes that we'd wear in the 1800s. No one wears blazers <laughs> like you see in these girls. And so it's this really old model. It's an industrial model of education. And so yeah. I want teachers that challenge that because that's outdated and it's clear. Oh. Kids are disengaged across the whole country. I would say yeah. 60% of all kids are completely disengaged around the country. It works for a few. It worked for me. School worked for me. Yeah. It probably worked for you. Yeah. It worked for my son. But the we're talking about the top 20% of kids, what yeah. it works for. And schools celebrate those top 20%. It's the only kids that they celebrate. The other 80%, they get ignored. So yeah. the 60%, and I ask these kids questions to these kids on enrollment all the time. What do you love about school? And they always say, I love lunchtime and I love yep. the last bell and I love tuck shop. That's pretty much it. But then there's also a group of kids at the other end that there's about 20% of kids where I actually think we cause harm to children. So we have kids with social emotional disorders. We have kids with high levels of anxiety, learning difficulties. And the amount of harm that we actually cause to children is actually disgraceful. And I think it's time for a change. So when I'm looking for teachers to come into the profession, I'm looking at teachers that want to change that, who are able to think outside the box and inside the box. Because there is legislative requirements, which we have yep. to abide by, but mainly Mainly those legislation requirements are for a certain type of schooling. They, they don't actually believe that school could be done any differently. So there's a lot of loopholes in that that allow you to do different things. So I want smart people, creative people, and kid, and people that love kids, and particularly people from outside education, because they'll look yeah. at it and go, why do you do this? This is dumb. Because it is dumb. And so yep. um, that's what I'm after. And so if people are thinking that is education like it was when they were at school, for the most part it is, but there are a lot of schools that are doing some pretty amazing, cool things. And so schooling as how they went through school is something they don't want to be a part of. Not all schools are like that and schools are pushing the boundaries. They're the exciting things and that's pretty much why I'm a leader in schools is because I want to push that and do things that are much, much different. That's very inspiring, i got to say, yeah. Doug. As someone yeah. who hasn't been in education now for 13 years, it's making me remember some of the reasons why I had loved teaching. Well, you left teaching. education probably. <laughs> do you remember enforcing uniform rules and we're not believing in uniform yep. rules? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It makes, you, it makes you think, why am I doing what I'm doing? I don't believe this. I actually don't agree with this. And it makes yeah. you question whether you should teach. And yeah. uh, there are schools that aren't doing that. But yeah, like I'm after smart, creative individuals that love kids who push the boundaries. That's what I'm after. And so if the traditional model of school is something that turns potential teachers off, there's many schools that are pushing the boundaries and it's an exciting place to be. Very exciting. And we need the smartest people to do those things. That's inspirational. So tell us if someone came to your school now, either as a, as a new staff member or even as a, a student, what are some of the things that they would notice that would set the school apart perhaps from some of the other schools? So if they did come to my school, this is, this is what would set us apart. We believe in phases, not age. 
So we don't agree with uh, ordering kids according to their date of birth, okay? Yeah, well. That's one thing. And I'll talk about what that means. We believe that schools inherently create a, a sense of belief in kids based upon the priorities of the schools. So I'll, I'll give an example of that. The timetable is the biggest beast that a school has. And a timetable communicates a lot about what we believe about school. So in a timetable, often there's more waiting for mathematics than there are for the arts. So if a student yep. is really good at art but not good at maths, they'll think themselves dumb. So yep. one of the one of the things that we've done in our schools is that every subject has equal weighting across the timetable. Arts yeah. are more important or no less important than mathematics and English. So that's a, that's a, that's something I'll see there as well. There's things that we do with the timetable that is intentional. And we know in high schools, teachers teach subjects, not kids. And we want teachers that teach kids, not subjects. And so yeah. in our um, year seven and eight space, which we call foundation phase, every teacher that teaches in year seven only teaches year seven, even the specialist teachers. And the reason why we do that is that we want teachers to teach as teams. We don't want there to be a maths department, an English department, a history department. We want all those teachers to teach together. And that even the German teachers and the art teachers and the music teachers, they only teach that grade. And so we want them to feel like a team and magic happens when those teachers can get together. They don't go to the other departmental meetings. Actually, we don't have departmental meetings anymore. We don't even have oh, yeah. so We have curriculum leaders but no heads of departments. From year nine and 10 is exploration phase. That is where we have cross-curricular subjects. So we have the traditional way of school because it works for a a small percentage, but we also have cross-curricular subjects. So I wrote a subject called Detective Investigations and that's actually Ah. the six-month course mapped to the Australian curriculum. They can do that instead of in humanities and English. We've got teachers that wrote um, a course called Technology and the Industrial Revolution. They're mixing science and all those sort of subjects together. Mm -hmm. The the interesting thing with that is that the teachers in the year nine, 10, space have to write and present courses to a committee before they get approved. That committee yeah. is just made up of students, not teachers. Oh, not just wow. students, they're disengaged students. And so each of the teachers had to do a pitch for three minutes on their subject. If those kids thought it was boring, that subject doesn't run. So student wow. voice and agency is really important in our school. So you'll see that as well, is the kids' um, view actually matters at our school. And then in year 11 and 12, where what we're trying to look at is alternate models of doing year 11 and 12. One thing that COVID has taught us is that kids want a hybrid mode of education. They had some in person and some at home. And so we're looking at how we can actually do year 11 and 12 to make it a bit more like university, really. But from year 9 to 12, there aren't any year levels anymore. So a kid could be in year 10 and studying their senior subjects. There could be kids in grade 12 choosing a year nine subject. They're all semester courses. So it's like university where you've got to pick these courses as prerequisites to get to here. Yep. You don't know who's a first year, a second year, a third year, just like uni. They've just got to map their path and get that approved by a learning coach. And then on a, we don't do teaching and learning on Wednesdays either. So on Wednesdays, um, it's oh. all project-based learning. So we have kids coming up with their own areas they want to learn about and we want to reignite their passion for learning. So we've got kids learning how to do sign language. We've got kids learning how to breed animals. We've got kids doing podcasting we've got kids visiting car yards and doing reviews on cars whatever their passions are we open up the whole school and say what would you love to do if we can make it happen we'll make it happen and that's the real love of learning teachers that come to our school see a major difference it's very 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 different but it's all about student voice student agency and making sure that we know where the kids are we don't want school to be like a bus where the bus keeps moving even if kids aren't aren't ready to move forward we want them to go at their own rate so very very different geez i wish i had gone to that school and i'm I'm not just saying (laughs) saying that because i'm talking to the principal um because there's so much of that that i think resonates doesn't it that and you mentioned a few times there doug the concept of agency it's empowering isn't it i mean this is and motivating yes you're motivated when you're empowered you feel like i've got self-control not just the students the teachers 
the teachers writing courses that they're passionate about and being given the freedom to do that. I've never seen teachers be so nervous presenting something they love to students. Even I did. When I presented my detective investigations unit, I was shaking because it was something passionate about and yeah. being assessed by the kids and you're truly hoping the kids are going to like it because if they don't like it it's not going to run that was the best day of my life was that day when the teachers were actually um, pitching their subjects and seeing the interest that the kids had had and the questions they're asking you can actually tell how engaged students are by the questions they ask mostly the teachers are asking the questions the kids aren't asking the questions yeah. yeah, if the kids are asking, and they were, they were asking amazing questions like, you know, you've said this, but have you thought about the budget? Like, this sounds like a very expensive thing to do. Can you outline how you thought this would cost and how you're going to fund this model? You know, that, these are the questions they were making. And these are wow. disengaged kids because they, were wanting, they actually want these subjects to run. And the wow. level of engagement, and I thought, I've never heard kids ask such deep questions before. And in my mind, I'm thinking, that's because they're disengaged. That's because they don't yeah. like what they're doing. It's because we tell them what they need to do and that we think that's yep. the right way to go about it. I think it's pretty exciting what we're doing there. But, yes, we. it's hard for me to say what sort of teacher do I want. I just want yep. smart, creative teachers that are willing to push the boundaries and realise that school doesn't have to be the way it is. It sounds to me like that would be an experience where your teachers are learning yes. a, as a lot and growing yes. a lot. Yes. Yeah. Not for all teachers. No. But, but, you know, there are teachers that really love this. Obviously, there's teachers that aren't going to like it as well. But that's part yeah. of leadership, isn't it? You know, you've always got a group that may not be on board, but when they see yeah. it working and they can see the enthusiasm, they then get attracted onto the onto the mission and the vision, and then it continues through. So a lot of work is done in vision casting, which is the other part of leadership. Now, you've touched, I think, uh, and you've answered many of the questions that I might have been going to ask as, as you've talked, and it's been absolutely fascinating. You've talked a bit about values, and uh, I think it's come through fairly clearly as you've talked, Doug, but can you talk a bit about how your values have guided you through the different kind of career decisions to the point you're at now. You've talked about your love of, of kids, your love of working with kids and seeing them grow. Are there other values that you can talk to that give uh, listeners a bit of an understanding of, mm. of what makes you tick and how you've navigated your way, particularly for people who are at an early stage and trying to work out, well, look, I'm at uni. I'm I'm not quite sure what I really deeply care about or, or what mm. sort of decisions uh, I should make about career. I suppose I've always wanted to make a big difference, whatever I do, whether it was in the police or whether it was a as a teacher and I think that probably is what's led me to leadership is that I realized at an early age you, you can choose to be frustrated at others and why things aren't happening the way they are and you can choose to become a toxic person and just complain yeah. or you can choose to make a difference and sometimes that requires going into leadership because that's the only way to make a positive change. So that's probably been the driving force is that I knew that I wanted to make a big difference. And the more um, influence that I was able to gather, the less frustrated I became and the easier it was to act. So that's probably been a fairly significant um, part of my whole life is that I need to influence, whether that's with a leadership role or not with a leadership role, it's through influence and, and gathering more influence. So that's probably been quite a big value. My Christian faith has guided me a lot as well in terms of yeah. that. And so, uh, like, I suppose one of the things I believe at my heart is that every single person has value. Yeah. 
every single person has value and it has worth and that has guided me too so and I know that some people are quite judgmental with children um even the even the kids that annoy most people are probably my favorite kids they're probably yeah. my favorites and that probably comes from my faith as well because every single individual has value I've always wanted to influence and I'm not and I'm not content to stay back and be a passenger I don't yeah. know whether I've got leadership skills but I've certainly grown them over time but I'm passionate that's another value I suppose and I'm yeah. very passionate about what I do I find life a work-life balance difficult which is is always hard but I also think when you do what you love you don't have to fight that work-life balance because it's a part of who you are as you've talked through this interview those values have really come through Doug so I think that's a really good place perhaps for us to wrap up no, no well, if anyone's that... listening and I want to teach come to plain yeah. We want you. Fantastic. That's awesome. Well, thank, thanks so much for your time. I would love to come and visit the school. But um, perhaps if you've got time, it'd be great to get you back on the show in yeah. the future to chat more about some of this stuff. No problems at all. Great. Well, Ken, that was incredible. Um, it didn't go where I thought it went, was going to. And just such an interesting path. The thing that uh, that jumps to mind straight away is this this passion and drive for mathematics which has made him perform really well in both careers. But mathematics has almost been that driving force, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And who would have thought that mathematics skills could be so useful in the Criminal Intelligence Bureau? Uh, certainly not me. Um, but also, no. that, <laughs> And also in turn that detective skills could be so useful in running a high school. And the thing that I had to remark on is who would have thought that someone would feel a calling to mathematics? Yeah, ex- I'm glad that there are those people out there because they're you know a unique creature and we need more of them. So what are the things then that kind of jumped out to you as as Doug was chatting? Ah, look, there were so many because, you know, as we've talked about before, we've both been high school teachers. So there was just a lot of you know familiarity in, in the journey that he took. But I guess one of the first things was this idea of how he sort of drifted into his different career paths. You know, he sort of followed his friends into teaching. So many of our major life decisions can be influenced often unwittingly by peers and trusted insiders. For me as a 17-year-old, I was tossing up between medicine, physiotherapy and journalism. And my older brother, Kerry, who's who's only three years older than me, basically said, don't do physio, you'll end up massaging old people in a hospital. Don't be a doctor, no work-life balance. So I was like, okay, I'll be a journalist then. <laughs> Another part that jumped out for me, Ken, was his comment from his guidance counsellor that he was too smart to be a teacher. And I found that so heartbreaking, mm. but it, it kind of goes to what the problem is with the Australian education system. It's really a cultural prejudice towards teaching as a profession that, you know, it's not it's not necessarily valued and esteemed in the way that it should be, given the enormous influence it has on Australia's prosperity, on children's happiness, on their outcomes. It's, you know, it's one of the most important professions. Absolutely. And our brilliant students need brilliant teachers, right? They need to be inspired by people who have great minds. And, and I think there's also a principle that can be taken from that test that certainly I saw it at school. It, the guidance was when you're trying to choose what course you should do, you almost pick the, the hardest course that you can get into. And it, it makes no sense at all, but I certainly have seen that kind of approach repeated. You know, if you're getting up a, a really high uh, exit score at the end of grade 12, then why wouldn't you go into the most exclusive courses, you know, at the hardest, you know, the university that's the hardest to get into? And I think that's a terrible way to make a decision, right? It's like saying, okay, I'm going to go and buy myself a car. 
how are you going to decide what car to get? Well, we'll just look at how much money you've got. Okay, if you've got fifty thousand dollars, then get a car for fifty thousand dollars. You know, it's it's absurd. We wouldn't do it in other areas of our life. But yeah, I think you're right. There's there's a real question to be asked there. You know, is that the best advice that we can give to kids who are coming through school? I I think we can do better than that. Completely echo all of those thoughts, Ken. So I thought also interesting, when Doug was talking about his time as a police detective, he he mentions the self-test, which I thought was fascinating. You know, would the decision pass the scrutiny of the public? Is it ethical? And seeing that those can be quite different things, right? The standard that the public applies to to judging your decision might be quite different to the ethical standards that guide your decision making. And then also different to whether the, the question of whether it is lawful. And then is it fair? It makes it extremely complex for people to make decisions in that situation. And this idea that a decision you make in a split second could be looked at for months or years in a a legal system. Uh, And it also made me also think about um, some of the things that I find really satisfying in my own work, because I think it would be very motivating for him because the decisions he make are having an impact on people's lives. You know, he's helping people, he's protecting people. So, of course, you want to do a great job and you'd be very motivated. And I think the, the kind of work that I also have found myself being the most engaged in is where you are that little bit more directly connected to the end result. So for instance, I've deployed overseas uh, with the government and I found that really, really satisfying. And you know, you're working basically seven days a week, 12 plus hour days, but you don't you don't even think about it because the work you're doing is so interesting and you feel like it's meaningful. The thing that really grabbed my attention as well and I thought was just so interesting was looking at what Faith Lutheran College is doing in terms of allowing teachers to design cross-curricular subjects, but then requiring them to present them as proposals to students who were the ones that made the decision about whether those subjects would go ahead, which I thought was simultaneously really risky, but incredibly empowering for both teachers and students. And I just, again, blown away because I thought, who would have thought of that? That's such an amazing idea. Yeah, look, it's one of those things where he's flipped something that's really something that we've all experienced is you go in, the teacher tells you what you're learning and what you're doing, and just flipped that and said, no, students should have a a role in that. And I think there's probably a lot of innovations out there that that could be similar. I've always thought promotions should be flipped. So rather than your superiors deciding if you're ready to be promoted, if you're going for a management role, the people you manage should actually be having a say in whether you're ready to be promoted. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And uh, look, I think everybody who's worked for poor managers would echo that. What I see interesting in this is, like we're thinking about decision-making here, you're actually giving decision-making power to the students at the school, which I think is often lacking when you're at school. So yeah, I thought that was a really great idea. Yeah, choice is uh, so essential for feeling motivated and empowered. If you don't get a choice, your commitment to a path is probably going to be a lot lower than if you've actively said, no, this is what I want to do. So I could imagine as a year nine student, if you pick the subject, you know, when it actually comes time to teaching, you're going to be a much more receptive uh, student. Look, also really impressed, we've talked about it, impressed by his passion and that statement that I've always wanted to make a big difference, whatever I do. And you made that comment. It made me yearn to be back in the classroom, uh, even though I'm very much enjoying what I do now. But it, it just reminded me of what drew me to teaching, that you can actually make a great difference in the lives of people. So it's it's really exciting to hear about that happening there at Faith. Yeah, I, I do miss teaching. Uh, I also found his... Um 
job in between detective work and teaching, so interesting, this hybrid between the two, sort of meshing those skills. Uh, for one, I didn't even know that that role existed. Um, no. But two, the idea that he could he could really go in there and value add because of his outside skills. And it kind of makes you think, oh, it, career choices and changes don't have to be drastic. You can kind of find the shoulder of what you're doing and where would it overlap into a new area. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. And you're right, I had no idea that that work, that kind of work existed either. It brings back to mind something that might have been raised in a previous episode, the idea of trying to broaden your choices, right? Instead of just saying, well, I kind of know about teaching and I know about police detective work, I'll just choose one of those options. You know, doing the work to find out what are the other options? You know, are there other things that maybe could allow me to bring skills from both areas together? And gee, you can't imagine there would be many people who have filled that role who would have had the skills that Doug had. As he was talking about it, he mentioned, you know, he was able to identify a whole lot of areas that needed some some work and improvement. So that was very impressive. I think there should be more of that professional crossover because I think that's really where a lot of the innovation and creativity happens. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's that nexus between those different fields where there's often opportunities that have yet to be discovered and exploited. Yeah. One of the, the other things that jumped out is his idea about helping kids with his motivation. And so even though he really loved classroom teaching, the way to help more kids was to become the principal and to go into leadership. And so he kind of he had that sort of natural drive to go and lead as a way to have that bigger impact. I think that's a wonderful way to think about promotion opportunities, right? It, if you're purely thinking about advancing yourself further, getting more pay, getting more prestige, getting more authority, it, there would be a serious question about how much more value you're going to be adding to the organization that you're working in. But his focus was really about, as we said earlier, making that kind of big difference. So seeing that he could make a bigger difference at that more senior level, I thought that was great. Oh, we should offer a word of translation too, because we know we've got people listening in a lot of different countries and we don't necessarily always notice the specific Australian expressions that we might be using. But Doug uses the word tuck shop. Tuck shop is not used in a lot of different countries. (laughs) And what does it mean, Tess? It's basically where you go to get your your snacks uh, while you're at school during your break. So you can go and get a pie, also a very Australian thing, or a sandwich, or an icy pole. A Vegemite sandwich, yeah, all those things that we eat here. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. <laughs> well, listen, Tess, what are the big takeaways for, for you from this episode? For me, it's that idea of thinking on the shoulder of your profession. So if you're looking for a change, what what's something that you could do that is similar to what you're doing, but that you'll give that fresh perspective and maybe have a bit more of an innovative approach with, based on your current skills? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic takeaway. I really agree. And it's not something I had thought about before. My big takeaway is that great leaders are willing to critically evaluate how things are done in order to find ways to do them better. And that for me is always inspiring. It's not just change for change's sake, but it's change when there's when you can see a real opportunity to do things differently. So that that was a good one for me. Ken, if people want to find a bit more about Doug's school, where can they uh, reach reach out for some more information? Yeah, fantastic. So, it, look, we'll have in the show notes the uh, URL for the school website for Faith Lutheran College. Uh, and as Doug said, if you're keen and inspired by that, reach out. Uh, he might even have a job for you, which I thought was pretty cool. 
<laughs> now, listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. And be sure to tune in next week. Tess, I believe we have another special guest. Who did you chat to? Yeah, another one I'm very excited for. I interviewed the CEO of Teach for Australia, Melody Potts Rosevia, and we talked about lots of things, including early career indecision. She actually did over 100 interviews uh, after university, which just blew wow. my mind. She talks about filling her bucket and some of the challenges of decision-making from a senior leadership position. So definitely one to tune into and con continues this education theme we're on at the moment. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to chatting to you then. Bye for now. Bye.